0: On the 26th of October 1921, a solicitor called Oswald Martin went to have tea with a fellow lawyer named Herbert Armstrong. The two worked for rival law firms in the town of Hay-on-Wye, which lies on the border between England and Wales. They were currently representing opposite sides in a local property dispute, but everything seemed amicable to Martin and he chatted with Armstrong as they enjoyed the cake and scones Armstrong's housekeeper had laid out. At some point during the meal, Armstrong picked up a buttered scone and handed it to his guest to eat, asking Martin to excuse fingers. Later that day, Martin was taken very ill with what at first seemed to be a bilious attack, although he then developed a worryingly rapid pulse and a local doctor was called in to treat him. It turned out that during his tea with Armstrong, Martin had consumed a hefty dose of arsenic. His subsequent illness set in motion a train of events that led to an exhumation, an infamous murder trial, and eventually, an historic execution. The case was hailed by George Orwell as a grisly highlight of Britain's Elizabethan period of murder and it went on to exert great influence over crime writers working in the 1920s like Dorothy L Sayers and Anthony Barclay. After all, isn't a poisoner handing his victim a scone laced with arsenic during a genteel tea party, just like something out of a Golden Age murder mystery? Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. This is another instalment in my irregular series about the real-life crimes that inspired the writers of classic detective stories. Today we're going to learn all about Herbert Rouse Armstrong and how his adventures with arsenic in the early 1920s ended up being immortalised in fiction. There are so many aspects of the Armstrong case that seem to be lifted straight out of the pages of a 1920s whodunit that it can be difficult to remember sometimes that the whole tale wasn't constructed by a novelist for our amusement. Tropes that we're so familiar with from detective fiction just keep surfacing. Probably the most obvious of these is to be found in the character of Armstrong himself. As well as being a solicitor, he was a churchwarden and a Freemason, a well-known and well-liked addition to the town of hay on He was married and a father of three. As neighbours, strangers and journalists alike said after his trial, it would be hard to find a less likely murderer. Armstrong's unlikeliness was even discussed by the characters in a real-life detective novel, Detection Unlimited by Georgette Heyer, published in 1953. Armstrong was a respectable little man no one ever dreamed would murder anyone. But he did, so it's no use saying the motive isn't strong enough, one says to another. In novels, at least, it's always the person you least expect. Isn't it? There were perhaps a few clues in Armstrong's background to his eventual fate, if one is willing to play armchair psychologist for a second in the best tradition of the amateur sleuth. Although by 1921 he appeared to be a model of middle-class prosperity, he didn't come from financial ease. He was born in 1869 in Plymouth to a colonial merchant and his wife, and grew up there and in Liverpool where, as far as I've been able to find out, the family's fortunes were decidedly on the wane by the time Herbert was old enough to think about a profession. The generosity of two aunts enabled him to go to St Catherine's College, Cambridge to study law, and from then on he worked hard to achieve the kind of stability and social position that he hadn't had as a child. Armstrong was also quite small in stature, even as an adult, standing just over five feet in height and weighing around seven stone. Both court reporters and later authors made much of this, suggesting that his lack of height and overt masculinity helped to make him into a murderer somehow. But personally, I'm not sure there's a lot of concrete evidence for that. He moved to the Hayon on area in 1906, after successfully applying for a job in a law firm there and a year later he married Catherine Friend. They had three children in quick succession, and in between work, parenting and church matters, Herbert also found time to take part in the volunteer force, a kind of proto-home guard. That meant that when the First World War broke out in 1914, he was called up straight away. He served at various bases around the UK and was also deployed in France. He seems to have done well in the military, He had achieved the rank of Major by the time he was demobbed at the end of the war. He apparently liked to be called Major in civilian life as well, which is a fact that perhaps matches up with his lack of height and Poirot-esque moustaches in creating what became the public image of Armstrong as a shy, henpecked, status-obsessed man with an inferiority complex. I've talked a lot on this podcast about how the First World War was a great force for social change far beyond the battlefields especially in relation to the roles and opportunities for women. Some men took advantage of the greater freedom and license the war years offered too, and Herbert Armstrong was one of them. Although his letters to his wife and children are affectionate, Armstrong, shall we say, lived it up a bit during the war, starting a number of affairs, and seemingly acquiring a taste for a secret life beyond his churchwardenly peacetime persona. Knowing this, With hindsight, it's not that surprising, then, that in 1919, his wife was suddenly taken ill. Amid all the publicity around Armstrong's trial and what came after it, I think the sad fate of Catherine gets a bit lost in most of the accounts. In May 1919, she was taken ill with a mixture of symptoms that include Numbness, pain, headaches, and gastric trouble. The local doctor, Thomas Hinks, was called in and diagnosed a kind of neuritis, which, as far as I, a non medical expert, can make out, is a broad term given to a whole variety of problems that stem from nerve inflammation. After that initial attack, she recovered and didn't see the doctor again for a whole year. But in the summer of 1920, she went downhill again rapidly with her mental health affected too after weeks of being unable to get out of bed because of continual vomiting. Her doctor, apparently still not suspecting anything untoward, recommended that she go away for treatment at a private mental asylum called Barnwood. While Catherine Armstrong was away, something rather extraordinary happened. A solicitor from another town in Wales was arrested upon suspicion of murdering his wife with arsenic. Mabel Greenwood had lived with her husband Harold and their four children in Kidwelly, a town about 70 miles west of where the Armstrongs were based. Mabel died suddenly in June 1919 after a perfectly normal meal disagreed with her. Her husband Harold then married another woman with what the local community considered to be unseemly haste, and there was a lot of gossip about whether Mabel had in fact been poisoned to make way for Harold's new woman. This, to me, sounds like something out of an Agatha Christie novel, but it really did happen. And after about four months, the accusations reached such a pitch that the Welsh police actually applied to the Home Office for permission to exhume Mabel's body. It was found to contain about half a grain of arsenic, and so a year after she died, her husband was arrested for her murder. It caused a great sensation in the national press, mostly because of how rare it is for a member of the legal profession to be tried for a major crime like murder. The publicity was such that Greenwood was able to secure the noted barrister Edward Marshall Hall to defend him. Known as the Great Defender, Marshall Hall had a great reputation as a brilliant orator and was very popular with the press. His defence for Greenwood relied on the fact that the police had no actual evidence showing that he'd administered the arsenic to his wife and made much of the fact that the whole thing had only ended up in court because of slanderous local gossip. Marshall Hall also spent a lot of time casting doubt on the forensic evidence and refuting the contradictory claims of various servants. And it worked. Greenwood was acquitted in November 1920, while Catherine Armstrong was away being treated for her own mysterious complaint at the private asylum. After the trial, Greenwood changed his name to Pilkington and moved to a different town with his new wife, and lived an apparently blameless life until he died naturally in 1929. Catherine began to improve as soon as she was admitted to Barnwood. She was extremely weak when she arrived, and was experiencing serious symptoms like heart murmurs, but after about four months there, she was well enough again to be discharged to be cared for at home. She arrived back at Mayfield, the Armstrong house near Hay, on the 22nd of January 1921, her apparently affectionate husband having driven to Gloucester to fetch her. Almost immediately, though, her mysterious illness returned, and weakened by the previous bout, she went downhill quickly. Dr Hinks was puzzled as to why she should recover so positively at the clinic, only to relapse so utterly when she got home. Her husband was seemingly very concerned too, spending long hours by her bedside. But exactly a month after getting back from Barnwood, Catherine Armstrong died from her symptoms. Her death was recorded by the doctor as being caused by gastritis and heart disease and she was buried with all due ceremony. Nobody suspected anything. At least, not yet. And there'll be more on that after the break. In Unnatural Death by Dorothy L Sayers, her sleuth Lord Peter Whimsey tackles a very difficult case. He has plenty of reason to suspect that a murder has been committed, but absolutely no way of proving it, or even really investigating it in any meaningful way. Whimsy and his friend, the Scotland Yard Inspector Charles Parker, discuss this endlessly throughout the book, wondering whether it's really only the bad murderers who get caught. The ones like George Joseph Smith of Brides in the Bath fame, that I talked about on episode 21 of this podcast, who don't seem to be able to stop once they'd got away with it a few times. Sayers' novel was published in 1927, and she has Whimsy explicitly reference Herbert Armstrong a couple of times, as another example of someone who might have got away with their initial crime if they'd only had some restraint. The serial murderer is such a staple of crime fiction, and Sayers uses it to great effect in this book, as her initial culprit commits more crimes as they try to thwart the investigation and get away with the first killing. If Herbert Armstrong had laid low after his wife's death, he might have escaped detection altogether. Unlike in the Greenwood case, it seems that there was little or no speculation that Catherine had been poisoned in his town. Later it did emerge that Herbert had a lady in Hampshire, to whom he had proposed marriage in the aftermath of his wife's death, but this wasn't well known, and there was no community outcry to speak of. He continued to practice law in Hayon Wye and live at Mayfield. Two of his children were away at boarding school, but the youngest still lived at home, and there were three servants in the household. During the summer of 1921, the newly widowed Armstrong got involved in a local property case. There is some speculation that he was already in financial difficulty, and if the decision went against him in this case, he would be personally liable to pay back a deposit of £500 he'd taken for the sale. During his trial, a lot was made by the defence of the fact that although Herbert had inherited his wife's estate of several thousand pounds, he hadn't attempted to touch the money, suggesting that his financial problems were not that bad. Regardless of how much or little debt he was in, Armstrong obviously decided that he could not pay the deposit back. Oswald Martin, another hay on solicitor, kept chasing him for the money, and Armstrong kept evading him. That's how the pair came to be having tea on the 26th of October 1921. Martin assumed the invitation had been extended so they could finally sort out this matter of the missing deposit. Armstrong mostly seemed interested in talking about local matters and even mentioned how he felt lonely after the death of his wife. She had been dead about eight months at this point and there was as yet no suspicion associated with her passing. In the end, it was the smallness of the town that really did for Armstrong because when Martin was taken ill after that suspicious scone, it was the same doctor who had attended Catherine Armstrong who came to treat him. Dr Hinks immediately recognised Martin's symptoms as similar. At the same time, Martin's father-in-law, John Davies, was having his own misgivings. He was a pharmacist, and had recently sold several packets of arsenic to Herbert Armstrong, supposedly so that the latter could kill the dandelions in his lawn. Knowing something about poisons, Davies put together this sale of arsenic with his son-in-law's symptoms after eating Armstrong's food and came to the conclusion that something nasty was going on. The three of them, Martin, Hinks and Davies, pooled their information and also realised that Mrs Martin's sister-in-law had recently become ill after eating chocolates from a box delivered anonymously to their house a few weeks before. Upon inspection, these were found to have been tampered with with a nozzle-sized hole in the bottom of each chocolate, showing where another substance had been injected. The doctor sent some of Martin's urine off for analysis, and when it tested positive for arsenic, he alerted the Home Office as to his suspicions. We'll never know whether Herbert Armstrong was inspired by what happened to Harold Greenwood, or whether it was just a coincidence that another solicitor in the same area was tried in a very similar case around the same time. We can be reasonably sure that Armstrong knew about what had happened, though. Local papers show that the tragedy of Mabel Greenwood and her husband's subsequent remarriage and trial were big news in Wales in the early 1920s. The authorities were also very aware of this case, and trying to avoid another high-profile acquittal of a solicitor was a big reason why the police moved so slowly and cautiously in Armstrong's case. Oswald Martin was advised by Scotland Yard not to accept any more invitations to tea or to eat any food sent anonymously to his house, but it took several months for police to gather evidence. In the meantime, Armstrong was passionately pursuing Martin, issuing regular invitations to have tea or dinner at his house. Martin couldn't let Armstrong know what was going on behind the scenes, but he also couldn't risk eating another poisoned scone so he ended up making farcical excuses as to why he couldn't come round. Armstrong, meanwhile, became more and more pushy. The two solicitors had offices near to each other, and at one point Armstrong took to having his housekeeper from home come and set up tea in his office, so that he could ring Martin on the phone and say, come round now, it's all ready, thus putting his fellow lawyer on the spot. Martin managed to evade all these traps, though, and Armstrong was eventually arrested on New Year's Eve. 1921. When the police took him, Armstrong actually had a packet of arsenic in his pocket, which looked particularly bad for him almost as if he was making sure that he was ready to poison someone at a moment's notice. Dorothy L. borrowed this detail for her 1930 novel Strong Poison, which also deals with arsenic. Armstrong was a keen gardener, and he stuck to his story throughout that he'd been using arsenic to kill dandelions, but he didn't have an adequate explanation as to why he separated his poison out into little individual packets that could be easily hidden in a suit pocket, rather than just pouring it straight into the ground to kill the weeds. After he was arrested, the Home Office gave permission to exhume his wife, and pathologist Bernard Spilsbury was dispatched to Wales to collect evidence for a belated post-mortem. You might remember Spilsbury from a couple of previous episodes of this podcast. He was rather famous by the 1920s because of his evidence as an expert witness in the Crippen case in 1910 and the Brides in the Bath murder trial in 1915. He was the one who opined on that bit of scar tissue purported to be from Cora Crippen and the one who nearly drowned a volunteer lady swimmer by accident while trying to prove how a woman could be overpowered and drowned in her own bath. His involvement in the Armstrong case, therefore, helped to attract greater public attention to it. Spillsbury found that Catherine Armstrong's body was exceedingly well preserved, far better, in fact, than one would expect of a corpse that had been buried for almost a year he discovered a good deal of arsenic still present in the organs and deduced that a major dose of the poison had been administered in the 24 hours before death. This contradicted Dr Hinks' theory that Catherine had died of gastritis and opened up the possibility that Oswald Martin was not Herbert Armstrong's first victim. Since Martin had eventually recovered from the scone, it was with the murder of his wife that Herbert Armstrong was charged in January 1922. (laughs) Martin Edwards says in his excellent book, The Golden Age of Murder, that the novelist Anthony Barclay, quote, took a special delight in identifying with meek, middle-class professional men who found themselves driven to murder. Barclay, who was unhappily married and had extramarital affairs, seemed to identify with men like Crippen and Armstrong, who had strong-willed wives who didn't always survive very long. The newspapers of the time were full of gossip that Catherine Armstrong had only allowed her husband to smoke in one room of the house and prevented him from drinking alcohol when he wanted to. Clearly grounds for doing away with her. The whole idea of a husband being henpecked and a wife domineering seems extremely loaded and misogynistic to me, but that's very much the lens through which this stuff was seen at the time. Herbert Armstrong's trial was very inspiring to Barclay, who used it as the basis for his 1931 novel, Malice aforethought*, published under the pseudonym Francis Isles. In this inverted mystery, the reader is taken inside the mind of Dr Bickley, a mild-mannered GP who poisons his wife in order to be with another woman. We see Bickley's trial from his own perspective, knowing from the very first line of the book that he's guilty, yet somehow Barclay makes the reader root for him to get away with it. Herbert Armstrong maintained his innocence throughout, but he did not get away with it. Although the police didn't actually have any evidence that he'd administered the fatal dose of arsenic to his wife, his possession of a large quantity of the poison, and the way in which her health had dramatically improved when she was away from him, was enough for the jury to find him guilty. His appeal against the verdict was dismissed, and he was executed at Gloucester Prison on the thirty-first of May 1922, becoming the only solicitor in British history to be hanged for murder. It's fitting, I think, to give the last word on this much-fictionalised story to a fictional detective. As Peter Whimsey says in Unnatural Death, Armstrong is supposed to have got away with many more crimes than he was tried for. It was being clumsy over Martin and the chocolates that stirred up the hornet's nest in the end. If Armstrong hadn't tried to kill someone with a scone, his subtle, progressive poisoning of his wife would probably never have been discovered. Which makes you wonder, how many smarter murderers have managed to stop after their initial success, and thus get away with their crimes? We'll never know. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.